Good morning. You're all very welcome. So I said to somebody, you know, that I met earlier on, you know, it's it's early when you meet the foxes on the road on the way in. So thank you for getting out of bed. Although it's dry, uh, it, it, it is cold. Um, this is our fourth and last top tip session of the year. Um, we've had an eventful year. And uh, what, we're, what we plan on doing this morning is talking to you about the issues that came up for us uh, during the year uh, and the changes and just summarising the changes in the legislation. So Orla's going to talk to you about paternity leave, which came in in September. She's also going to talk to you about the new requirement on employers to allow employees accrue annual leave while they're on sick leave. Um, something on a very personal level bothers me a little bit because our legislation, which dates back to 19, 1997, always said that employees accrue annual leave while they're at work. Um, so the notion that somebody accrues annual leave while they're out on sick leave is something that is as a result of several decisions uh, at European level, which necessitated a change in our legislation. So Orla's going to take you through that. And then Avril's going to give you the benefit of some of our collective experience around whistleblowing now that the legislation has kind of bedded down and our experience um, and some of the cases. Uh, she's also going to talk to you about our experience of the Workplace Relations Commission. So that took, our, that, that began its life uh, in its current form in October 2015. So we're just over a year on. Um, I'd like to tell you we've had a happy experience with the new entity. We haven't. Um, and Orla's going to tell you, or sorry, Avril's going to tell you a little bit about that. And she's also going to touch on uh, the topic of the day, which is Brexit. Um, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen, uh, not yet anyway, but some kind of perspective on what, what the implications might be uh, for employers following Brexit, um, assuming Ms May gets around to actually triggering it. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to do is, is give you an idea of what this year has been about for us, because there are 18 of us on the team. So I think we've a, we're, we've a pretty good, we are a pretty good measure of the types of things that are issues for employers in any given year. And at the end of each year, we always look back and go, actually, what, what was this year about? And, you know, 2008 was about redundancies and 2009 was about redundancies and 2010 was about redundancies. But thankfully, um, we've moved on. And every year, something, the, the, the year is marked by something that's been kind of a little bit different to other years or the years highlighted by issues which uh, come up on a repeated basis for us. So there's, there's two issues that have come up this year more than any other year. I think there are two issues that are unlikely to go away, but they're um, becoming the subject of increasing calls and uh, increasing advice. Um, the first one is the gig economy. Okay, I was uh, at an employment conference in the US a couple of weeks ago, and for the whole three and a half days I was there, all the room full of lawyers talked about was the gig economy. And what, the first day or two I was going to sort of, What's the gig economy? I actually wasn't entirely sure what they were talking about. I actually do know what they're talking about because we're all talking about the same thing. We're not all just describing it the same way. So I had a look last night and Cambridge, uh, their definition of the gig economy is a way of working 
that is based on people having temporary jobs or doing separate pieces of work, each paid separately, rather than working for an employer. Okay, so what I call, or what we on the team call, atypical working. Now that's a phrase that you're all familiar with. And McKinsey, in a recent report, said 162 million people in Europe and the US are currently working in the gig economy. Um, and they say a different, a different uh, report by Intuit say that by 2020, 40% of the workforce is going to be working in the gig economy. Um, and by that, they mean 40% of the workforce are going to have what we call atypical working arrangements. So what are atypical working arrangements? Um, what, what atypical working arrangements are for us are employees who work on fixed-term contracts, uh, employees who work on, part, um, on a part-time basis, uh, employees of agencies who provide their services to end users or to hirers, as we call them, uh, employees of third parties to whom functions are outsourced, uh, and then in contractors, usually self-employed contractors, or individuals who provide their services via some kind of special purpose vehicle. And a lot of the time this year when the phone rang, um, it was about how to manage atypical workers and specifically issues around agency workers. And one of the concerns for me and one of the things that I've been banging on about all year to the team and to clients alike is the blurring of lines between agency workers, employees of third party service providers and direct employees. And if you look around us here, we're in the middle of Dublin's Silicon Docks. Um, in, in, dependent on what you read, Google will say they have four and a half thousand people to six and a half thousand people next door. If I were to take a wild guess, I suspect less than a thousand of those are actually employees of Google. The rest of them are employed by Accenture, by Arvato, by third party service providers, by agencies, um, and the same in most of the tech companies around Dublin. And there's lots of concern about deemed employees. There's very little case law on it at the moment, either here or in the UK, but it is something that I think is, some, is, is going to have to be very closely monitored. Um, and one of the things I, I see repeatedly is um, organisations outsourcing a function, outsourcing their finance function, outsourcing their, their, their call centre function, and then saying to their outsourced service providers, will you put so-and-so on your books because we need her to cover a maternity leave, but we don't want to make her an employee. That makes the outsourced service provider an agency for which they need a license. And I think that's something that's getting a little bit lost in the mix. Um, and how outsourced service providers, outsourced service providers manage their own employees. They're not under the direction and control of the user, unlike agency workers for whom you pay a daily rate or an hourly rate or a weekly rate to an agency and their employees of the agency, but you tell them what to do. So I think there's a lot of blurring of lines and it's something that we're getting repeatedly asked about and it's something that we're repeatedly are increasingly talking about in order to educate clients um, and educate HR practitioners. And even where HR practitioners understand it, it's about educating the commercial people and the business people about how they manage agency workers or how they manage the employees of third-party service providers 
or the distinction between a direct employee and somebody who provides their services on a contract basis as a self-employed contractor. Um, because we all know the test, and you've all heard me saying it before, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, is a duck. Uh, so somebody's a self-employed contractor, but they're treated like an employee to all intents and purposes, then they likely are an employee. And that brings a whole host of revenue issues or a host of employment issues. And it's just something that I think employers need to be increasingly not only aware of, but vigilant of. And it increasingly is going to have to be something that employers think about and educate their managers about. Um, actually, I was, I was thinking about some examples even around Dublin um, of these kind of almost atypical working arrangements. Um, and you've all heard of Deliveroo, you've all heard of Uber, Etsy, Airbnb. They're all kind of alternative ways of employees making money. Um, and, and it's just something that we're increasingly getting asked about um, more so than, than any other year. And it's something that's not going away, something I'd urge you all to keep on your age radar and just be conscious of, and we'll keep it on ours as well. Um, so that's one. And then the second issue I think that's coming up first, and it's, it's always kind of been an issue, um, but something that's, that we're increasingly getting asked about or we're increasingly getting involved in, um, particularly in the private sector, and maybe more in the tech space, um, but actually in every space, is that kind of blurring of relationships or that blurring of lines as between when it, what is work-related and what's uh, social. Um, my niece is in her mid-20s and she's after moving up from Galway to, to uh, take a job in Airbnb. Um, she's having an absolute blast. She's rented an apartment on Parnell Street and she has one of the bedrooms rented out and she's getting 65 quid a night and she's completely bought into it. And I was talking to my brother-in-law a couple of months ago and he said, well, Megan, is, she's just completely bought into it. She, she's living the Airbnb dream. And, and like, we all know what he's talking about because she eats, sleeps and breathes Airbnb. And I have the same experience with employees with lots of clients, um, particularly that kind of new generation um, and particularly with younger employees. Half of me wishes I was Megan and 24 again um, because she's out every night. She's at festivals at the weekends and all with all of her colleagues. Um, and that is amazing. But from an employer's perspective, the calls that we're getting uh, on a Monday and on a Tuesday and on a Wednesday and on a Thursday morning is about things that happened in the pub the night before. And when is that work related and when is it not? Because we all know and everybody accepts that the workplace doesn't finish at six o'clock in the evening anymore when people turn off their laptops and walk out the door. Um, when is the outing in the pub uh, or the festival at the weekend work-related, and when is it not work-related? More often than not, it's not work-related, but does it become work-related if one of the managers there and he's put 100 quid behind the bar? Does that mean you're then responsible for things that happen? And I don't want to be a party pooper, and I don't want to say you should never do that, because the reality is that that happens. But where is the line between what's work-related and what isn't work-related? And even when something isn't work-related... I've had three calls in the last six weeks in respect of very, very, very serious sexual assault allegations, which happened between colleagues outside of the workplace. Um, and it doesn't matter that it wasn't at a work-related event because it was between co colleagues. It then becomes an employer's maybe not legal responsibility, but to 
a certain extent, a moral responsibility. And it's that blurring of lines that's becoming an increasing issue and something that we're having to grapple with and something you guys are going to have to grapple with if you're not already grappling with. And it's just something that's increasingly becoming an issue for us as advisors and something I'd urge you all just to um, to keep an eye on. So that's kind of a flavour of the two issues that are, are, for me, are going to be peculiar to 2016, I think there are two issues who are, which are not going to go away. They're, they're, they're going to come up again. And this time next year, I expect we'll still be talking about them. But without any further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Orla. Um, good morning. Um, Today, as Melanie said, I'm going to go through some of the uh, legislative developments that happened in 2016 and also go through some of the, the, the impact of recent changes, which mightn't have actually happened in 2016, but we're actually seeing on a practical day-to-day -day level are actually taking effect. Now, the first thing that I'm going to talk about is paternity leave. So the, the Paternity Leave Bill, as you know, was introduced a number of years ago, and its stated purpose was to recognise the role of fathers in the lives of newborn babies and, uh, and young children. So in August 2016, the Paternity Leave and Benefits Act was introduced. And in effect, what it says that is that employees are entitled to a period of two weeks continuous paternity leave in relation to any child which is born or placed after the 1st of September 2016. Um, in order to be eligible to be entitled to paternity leave, you must be a relevant parent for the purposes of the Act. And it is quite um, a significant definition. So it includes the father of a child, it includes the spouse, civil partner or cohabitant of the mother of the child, which obviously includes same-sex couples. And in the case of an adoption, where the adoption is uh, in place of a, a same-sex couple, one parent must choose to be the relevant parent for the purposes of the Act. And then in any other case, the spouse, civil partner or cohabitant of the adopting mother or sole adopting father. Um, there is also... The, the Act also includes a, a reference in the definition of relevant parent to parents of donor-conceived children, but that actually hasn't been enacted yet. So obviously what the legislature is presumably foreseeing in the future is that we will get some form of governance in relation to the area of surrogacy. Obviously we don't have any legislation to that effect yet, and the Supreme Court have openly criticised the legislature for that. But hopefully this is a sign of things to come and there will be some provision um, introduced, hopefully sooner rather than later, so it's that the law will catch up with signs and employees who are in a surrogacy situation will be protected. Um, if there are twins, it's still only one period of paternity leave. As I said, paternity leave must be taken at any time within 26 weeks of the birth or placement of the child. Employees must give four weeks' notice of their intention to take paternity leave, and obviously they're entitled to return to the same job. Um, there isn't any obligation to pay an employee during maternity leave, but the employee, depending on their PRSI contributions, which is the same for maternity leave, may be entitled to €230 Euro per week. So the main question which we're getting is, well, if I top up maternity leave, do I need to top up paternity leave? And we've had a number of discussions about this, and we come down to the same conclusion. Look, you probably should, because otherwise it could be discriminatory. 
Okay, that's what we're coming to the conclusion. Um, obviously, then, I would highly recommend that you have a policy in place which deals with who's entitled to it, how you apply for it, um, you know, when you can take it, and obviously the issue of pay as well, if, if it is something that you're going to, uh, to, to provide. So that was just a whistle-stop whistle tour of uh, paternity leave. Um, the next topic which I'm going to discuss is sick leave accruing, sorry, annual leave accruing and certified sick leave. Um, Melanie has already given her thoughts on it, um, but I think it's great as an employee. Um, uh, okay, by way of background, I suppose, look, annual leave, it, it's really a health and safety leave. The purpose of annual leave is to ensure that you all get times away from your desk for re rest and relaxation. That's effectively the purpose of it. And our local legislation obviously enacted it with that in mind by saying the more time you're in the office, i.e. the more time you're working, the more annual leave you accrue, up to a maximum of four weeks. That was all fine until about 2009 when the ECJ handed down a decision in the case of Stringer, which basically said, look, if you're out of the office and you, you can't actually accrue annual leave, well, then you shouldn't be disentitled to it. So that changed, albeit our local legislation didn't change. And then again, in a case a year or two after that, in the case of Schultz, the ECJ said, yes, you can accrue annual leave while you're on sick leave, but that isn't an indefinite right. So if you're out for 10 years, you can't continue to accrue the annual leave for 10 years. You must actually be back in the office at some point because there has to come a point in which you lose that entitlement. And in the Schultz case, it was uh, a German case, and in their national legislation said that you had 15 months to use the annual leave, and if you weren't back in the office by that stage, you lost it. And the ECJ said, no, that's fine, that's reasonable. So for a while, we had this, I suppose there was no connection between what the ECJ was saying and what our local legislation was saying. So there was a bit of a disconnect. And that then was, I suppose, that was connected then in 2015. So albeit it is last year, we're only kind of releasing the impact of this this year. So what the, the legislation now says is that employees continue to accrue statutory annual leave during periods of certified sick leave. And they're entitled to the benefit of that accrual for a period of 15 months following the end of the leave year in which it accrued. So that's what it says in a nutshell. The Act doesn't make any reference to contractual annual leave. So if you entitle your employees maybe to 25 days annual leave, that's five days contractual annual leave and obviously 20 days statutory annual leave. And the legislation doesn't make any reference to public holidays. So the law hasn't changed in that regard. So I think because it's coming across our desk more and more, I've just put out a practical example. So John works for ABC Limited and their annual leave year runs from the 1st of January to the 31st of December. He's continuously absent from the 1st of May 2015 until the 1st of September 2018. So what is he entitled to? <coughs> this is what he's entitled to. So from the 1st of May up until when the legislation was introduced, he gets nothing because the legislation does not have retrospective effect. From the 1st of August, 2015 until the end of the leave year, he does accrue his entitlement, but he loses it because he doesn't come back to work within 15 months of the end of that leave year. So he doesn't come back to work before the 31st of March 2017. So he loses it. For the very same reason, the employee loses his entire entitlement 
to 2016 statutory annual leave. Again, because he doesn't return to work before March 2018. He returns to work in September 2018, which means he is entitled to the benefit of his 2017 annual leave and his 2018 annual leave up until September, and obviously he accrues it then as normal when he returns to work. Now, that's about 33 days annual leave that he's after accruing during that period of absence. And likewise, if John doesn't return to work, the exact same thing. He's entitled to the benefit of 2017 annual leave and 2018 annual leave, i.e. his 33 days, he's entitled to be paid in lieu of that on the termination of employment. Public holidays don't count, and he loses any entitlement from 2016 backwards. But as we all know, if employees are continuously absent for you know, one, two, or three years or whatever, they rarely come back to work full-time. They usually come back to work on a phased basis. So what happens if John does return to work for three days a week and he's got his 33 days banked annual leave and he's continuing to accrue it when he comes back? Is he entitled to take his two days? He's probably exhausted his sick pay. So can I take my two days that I'm not working as annual leave and eat into the bank? Obviously, you know, I can see the practical reality to that and it probably benefits everybody. But I actually don't think it's within the meaning of the legislation. And our legislation specifically says that if you take a day's annual leave, but you're subsequently certified sick on that day, it cannot be deemed a day's annual leave. And our legislation is quite specific in that regard. So in this circumstance, John has obviously been told, or you've been told by John's doctor, that he can only return, he's only fit for three days, which means he's unfit for the other two days. So it doesn't actually come within the scope of the legislation to say that the balance should be annual leave. Contractual annual leave, that is not affected by the Act, so it's entirely up to either your contract or your policy, whatever the case is. If, it's, if your policy is silent on it, I'd recommend that you amend it. But even if it is silent on it, I'd say, look, I think it's open to you to say, no, you don't accrue statutory, or, sorry, contractual annual leave during periods of certified, certified sickness absence. So the next thing I'm going to deal with is uh, whistleblowing. And as you all know, the, the Act, the Protected Disclosures Act or the Whistleblowing Act, um, came into effect in 2014, which is obviously quite a while ago. But the reason that we're touching on it today is that it's only in the last three months that we've actually seen successful applications for the statutory injunction. And we've also seen the first award of penalisation under the Act. So I'm not going to go through you know, the Act in detail. You all know what it says, but a broad overview is the Act was introduced to basically protect employees who made a protected disclosure. The Act is quite complex, so um, there was a code of practice introduced in October last year, which actually encourages, strongly encourages employees in the private sector to, uh, to put in place a policy setting out how and when you know, protected disclosures should be made. Um, it's obviously a requirement in the public sector that you have one. Um, it covers workers, not just employees, so your trainees, your interns, your executives, your casual workers, your agency workers, it covers all types of workers. Um, and basically what it says is that if you make a protected disclosure, you can't be penalised for it. And a protected disclosure is the disclosure of relevant information which is reasonably held in relation to a relevant wrongdoing. 
And a relevant wrongdoing is a wrongdoing which is unrelated to the contract of employment. So it's not a grievance. So it's something to do with fraud or the mismanagement of funds or a health and safety breach or you know, there's an offence being committed. And then penalisation is anything from demotion, layoff, dismissal, suspension, harassment. So if there's a connection between those, well, then obviously you might have an issue. Now, what's interesting about the Act is that it provides for an, an interim relief. So it's the first type of a statutory injunction, effectively, which provides that if I am dismissed and I can show that there are substantial grounds to say that my dismissal was wholly or mainly connected with my protected disclosure, the, the circuit court can order either reinstatement, re-engagement or order pay to continue until the hearing is ultimately heard by the WRC. So that's the first form of redress, and I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. And then the second one is they can award compensation up to five years remuneration. So that's obviously a substantial increase on any of the unfair dismissal or you know other offences that we have in employment law. So the recent cases are, first of all, I'm going to deal with the statutory injunction. And the threshold is not to prove that the dismissal was wholly or mainly um, from the employee having made the protected disclosure, but that there are substantial grounds for contending that that could be the case. So the WRC will obviously deal with the, the, the main issue, whether or not the dismissal was related to the protected disclosure, but the court only has to decide, are there, is there enough evidence here for me to raise an eyebrow and say, actually, I think there is a link between the two, and that's why you were dismissed. So the first case um, of its kind was uh, Philpott versus Marymount. And I should say that we were involved in this, but it was highly reported on at the time in the media, etc. So I'm not actually telling you anything that isn't otherwise <coughs> available in Google. Um, in, in the case of Philpott, uh, Mr. Philpott was appointed as the CEO of Marymount on a fixed term contract for five years. And after eight months, he was dismissed for what he was told were uh, significant interpersonal difficulties. He disputed this and said, no, it wasn't because of that. It was because I made protected disclosures. And he had, in fact, made disclosures about the misuse of charitable funds, health and safety breaches within the organisation, and the mismanagement of finances. So the case actually took a good bit of time, actually, in the, the, the circuit court. I think it was either two or three days. So there was a lot of evidence from both sides. Ultimately, the judge held that in relation to the, the misuse of charitable funds, the, um, the institution, so Marymount, had actually always acted in compliance with legislation, so there wasn't sufficient evidence to prove that. In relation to the health and safety breaches, again, obviously there was some little issues, but the institution had actually passed two HICWA exams, or I suppose inspections, and so they were deemed in compliance. And likewise, there wasn't sufficient evidence to prove that there was any mismanagement of funds. So whilst the judge held that the complaints or the disclosures were sincerely held, they weren't actually reasonably held, and so they weren't protected disclosures, and the case was dismissed. So that was at the, actually the end of 2014, and it's only in the last two or three weeks that we've had these other cases reported on. So this one you might well have seen in the newspaper recently. It's the case of Clark and Dugan versus Lifeline Ambulance. Um, effectively, Clark and Dugan were uh, employees of Lifeline Ambulance. They'd been there quite a while. They were senior employees, and they had made a disclosure to the revenue commissioners along the lines of um, there were financial irregularities and employees were actually being given expenses in lieu of taxable income. 
So that, uh, that protected disclosure was made about three months before the employees were selected for redundancy. Now, there was a lot going on um, in this case, and uh, David Hall, who was the owner of Lifeline Ambulance, came back into the business, and he had actually commissioned an independent review of the business. And in front of that independent review, it was decided that these two guys should be made redundant. Um, Lifeline uh, Ambulance completely denied the allegations that there was any connection whatsoever, well, obviously they did, between the dismissal and, uh, and the protected disclosure. They said their defence was it was on foot of an independent review. Three employees had actually signed the protected disclosure, but only two of them were made redundant. Um, and actually the Clark and Dugan were in cahoots together and they were going to set up in competition. The judge said... Right, that might well be the case, but my role here is not to decide whether or not the dismissal was wholly or mainly related to the protected disclosure, but rather are there substantial grounds for contending that that might be the case. And given the link between you know, the, the disclosure and the redundancy, he decided, yes, actually, there was sufficient link and there was substantial grounds, and he ordered that reinstatement and re-engagement weren't um, appropriate measures at the time, but that the contract of employment continue until the WRC hearing was heard. So obviously they were continued to be paid. And ultimately, once you get to the WRC, you're obviously at a much higher exposure of potentially five years remuneration. Um, the next case is uh, Kelly versus Alien Vault, and we don't actually have uh, a written judgment in this, so th I suppose we're, we're going kind of, we're advising in a vacuum here a little bit, but effectively it was the same thing. Miss um, Kelly w made complaints, she worked down in an office down in Cork, and she made complaints to the US basically saying that there are huge health and safety breaches within the, the organisation, there are sewage leaks, employees are being um, lo are, are locked in toilets for hours on end because there's obviously faulty um, faulty equipment, etc. And apparently, uh, the US could not understand her enthusiasm about facilities. <laughs> and they fired her. Um, so off she went into the court and said, look, there's obviously a link between the two of these. I've made this protected disclosure, and I've now been dismissed. And the judge again said, yes, there is a substantial ground for contending that that could be the case, so I'm going to award you your interim relief. So in you know, two and a half years, we've only had three situations where the interim relief has been sought. One was unsuccessful and the other two were successful. Finally, and I'm just going to touch on penalisation as well. So under the Act, you don't actually have to be dismissed, obviously, to, to seek uh, compensation. You can be penalised, and penalisation has a very, very broad definition. Any, so any sort of detriment to, um, to the employee on foot of making the disclosure. And in this case, uh, the Labour Court actually overturned the Rights Commissioner in this case, where Ms Monaghan had worked in a care centre. And again, look, she'd made protected disclosures to HICWA, basically saying there was a number of health and safety breaches. Um, HICWA eventually came in to do an inspection, and at that point, the the care centre found out that the reason for the inspection was a number of calls from Miss Monaghan, um, and they suspended her in order to carry out the investigation is what they said. But the reality was, the Labour Court said, if she hadn't made the, the disclosures in the first place, she wouldn't have been suspended. And so they gave her an award of €17,500, which was, uh, my understanding is that it's the equivalent of the four months pay that she um, she would have earned, and she did earn, she was suspended with pay, but it was also the equivalent compensation, so €17,500 for suspending her because the suspension was connected with the protected disclosure. 
So I suppose the, the, the tips in relation to this is one, have a policy in place and two, if there is a protected disclosure in your workforce, just be very careful if you are going to, I suppose, make any organisational restructurings that you, you do have a very clear, distinct line between them and that they are not connected. So now Avril is going to talk you through what is the Workplace Relations Commission. morning. So I'm going to talk to you about two things this morning. First of all, the relatively new Workplace Relations Commission and also the ever-changing Brexit. So back in January 2014, at another of our top tip sessions, I spoke about the proposed changes to Ireland's tribu employment tribunal system. And now, almost three years later, it's interesting to look back at their proposals and see what changes have actually been implemented now that the Workplace Relations Commission has been enforced for nearly 14 months. And also to give you an idea of our experience to date. Um, before it was set up, the vision for the new system, so the, the Workplace Relations Commission and the new Labour Court, was that it would be a world-class service. I think that vision was a little bit blurred because there are certainly some teething problems with the new administration service anyway in the WRC. And as a team, we have had hugely inconsistent experiences of the WRC to date. And I'll give you some examples of those. But looking at the positives first, um, the WRC is now the umbrella body for dealing with all claims lodged from the 1st of October 2015. So it incorporates the functions of the EAT, the Rights Commissioner Service, the Equality Tribunal, and NERA. And the fact that there's only one single point of entry for all claims means that employees can't do any forum shopping, which, which is great. Time limits have been harmonized. So when I say harmonized, I mean the test for in which an employee can extend the time to bring a claim. So an employee has six months to bring a claim or 12 months if they can show reasonable cause for the delay. Um, it used to be the case that some legislation had a test of exceptional circumstances. The test is now reasonable cause across the board. And this is actually one of the few substantive legal changes. In general, we are seeing a shorter waiting time for hearing dates, although it's not exactly the three months that we had been promised. Um, the equality case backlog has been halved. So in the past, equality cases took much longer to, to come on, to be assigned a hearing date than other employment cases. It was up to three years in some circumstances, which was totally ridiculous. Um, so that is definitely a welcome development. But having said that, the, the statistics are saying that less than 20% of the adjudication officers are actually previous equality tribunal officers. So this means that the adjudicators have little interest and little knowledge, it has to be said, of equality cases. Uh, finally, then, we're told that the legacy cases in the EAT will be finished by quarter one or quarter two 2017, and then it'll just be all cases will go to the WRC. Overall, though, um, people are just not very happy with the new system, it has to be said. Um, and earlier this year, in a survey that was done by the Employment Law Association of Ireland, uh, the survey found that there was less than a 41% favourable satisfaction rate with the new system. And one in every two lawyers who, who participated in the survey found that the, the new system was actually worse than the previous one. So to give you some examples, um, one of the 
the main issues, I think, and something that's at the core of, of the problems is that the WRC procedures on employment and equality cases are not statutory. So a failure to comply with the procedures can't be enforceable. Something else that's um, a bit disappointing is that there's a failure to identify and deal with preliminary issues in advance of the hearing. So um, we had been told that you know, if somebody had a preliminary issue, such as the claimant being way out of time with their claim, that it would be dealt with without having to go to hearing. But this isn't really happening. There's a sense that letters identifying these kind of preliminary issues are not really being considered. And we had a case recently enough where the wrong respondent was actually named in the claim form. Um, and uh, it was within the same group of companies, but we still felt it was worth raising. We wrote the WRC, but the response was just that, look, you'll have to go along on the day and explain it in person, which was obviously a waste of everybody's time. Um, our view is still that it is worth raising these preliminary issues. Um, so at least you have set out your stall and you can rely on that on the day at the hearing. In terms of the early resolution and mediation service, again, this isn't really working as it was envisaged, although I did meet a lady this morning who said she had a good experience with it, so that's the first positive I've heard. But um, the fundamental principle behind the, the service was to avoid unnecessary hearings. Um, but on the one hand, it seems that uh, mediators are just kind of going through the motions when there's, there's very little indication that the parties actually want to mediate. And on the other hand, for parties who do want to mediate, it seems that there isn't enough resource to meet the demand. I think, Melanie, you had a case recently, didn't you, where you wrote the WRC, the parties wanted to mediate, you said, look, we're open to mediation session, that was just ignored and the case had to proceed to hearing anyway. Um, one of the requirements of the new WRC procedures is that the parties submit a prior statement within 21 days for unfair dismissal and employment equality cases. This is basically a short defence and it's, it's along the lines of the Form T2 that we used to submit in the EAT. But the statement has caused a lot of uncertainty and confusion because there's huge variation in, in the level of detail that's actually needed. Um, it's not clear what consequences there are, if, if any, for failing to comply with the 21-day timeframe. We have had some cases where the claimant produces the, the statement on the day and it doesn't seem to delay the hearing or, or prejudice the hearing. Um, there is a sense that claimants who are not legally represented are getting a lot of leeway when it comes to the statement. And for other statutory claims, such as claims under the fixed-term workers legislation or the payment of wages legislation, no prior statement is needed, which doesn't really make sense when you think that really those issues can be just as technical and just as complicated as, as unfair dismissal cases. Our view is still that it's worth absolutely submitting this statement, um, even if the claimant hasn't submitted one, but keep it short, don't give too much away, and anyway, that's what we're here for, we're here to draft those statements for you. Um, adjournments, I'll just mention that, there's a bit of a mixed experience of getting adjournments as well. In the EAT, even though it was quite tough to get an adjournment, at least everybody knew what process to follow, but in the WRC, it, it seems that the, the process is that you send an email to this particular email address to seek your adjournment, um, which means that it can be a bit harder to persuade the, the, the WRC of your, of your arguments. Um, you don't need to get the consent or even to look for the consent of the other side. They can be very last minute and you know, um, there's inconsistency on adjournments being granted depending obviously who is dealing with your request. Um, but again, 
we, we are here to make those applications on your behalf anyway, so you don't need to worry too much. In terms of the hearing itself then, um, one adjudicator sits alone to hear all cases, regardless of the claim. And the fact that only one person can hear complex issues such as unfair dismissal cases is a little bit worrying, depending on what kind of adjudicator you get on the day and what kind of experience they have. The hearings are held in private, so there's no publicity. There's huge inconsistency in how the hearings are being run, in the styles of the adjudicators and in how they comply with the procedures. Um, although the EAT was never intended to be as formal as a court, I suppose it had an element of formality which uh, gave people some comfort because it meant they knew what to expect. But at the WRC, we effectively have no idea how the hearing will be run, um, whether witnesses will be allowed to give evidence or when. Um, and we've seen some hearings which are run very informally, like the old Rights Commissioner Service uh, hearings, whereby the adjudicator just throws out questions to the floor and listens to some statements and not, not others, or might decide after 20 minutes that he or she has heard enough. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, then, we have had some very formal hearings, more along the lines of the EAT, where each witness is allowed to give evidence and be cross-examined. Um, so it really is the look of the draw as to who you get on the day. And I suppose our only tip for that is that you just need to be prepared for the hearing going any which way um, and go with the flow of the particular adjudicator. I'll just mention uh, decisions briefly as well. Um, decisions, we're told, are being issued within six weeks, although I think in reality it is a bit longer than that. Um, the decisions are anonymous and they are meant to be meaningful and legally reasoned and they're published on the WRC's website. Again, this kind of varies depending on the adjudicator's you know, background and, and experience. Um, Orla got two decisions recently for the same case. They, I think it was the same decision, but different signatures, different dates, and she rang up the WRC to, to say this to them, and the response was, oh yeah, sure, that's forever happening. Like, this just shows what kind of an administrative nightmare we're dealing with. I think what we can learn for, from our experience to date is don't assume that a claim is getting a particular high level of attention from the, the WRC administration service. Um, if there is a major preliminary issue, you know, we will need to, to raise it and chase it ourselves. Always prepare a prior statement, even if the claimant hasn't submitted one, and really be prepared for the hearing going any which way. But we'll guide you through the process anyway. Moving on. Um, each week, Brexit brings a new unexpected twist, and we're never quite sure what it means for the days ahead, let alone what it means for the, the years ahead. And even though some people feel that there won't be dramatic changes from an employment perspective, others disagree, and obviously we don't know, but some members of our team have been doing quite a lot of research into this, Stuart Connolly in particular, and it seems that there are three main things to be mindful of. First of all, Ireland will lose its only common law buddy in the EU. Ireland operates the same legal system as the UK, which means that post-Brexit, we won't have as much support when it comes to negotiating matters in the EU. The distinction between Irish and UK law will grow, maybe not initially, but over time it will, um, and that will have a particular impact on an island-wide basis as between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, 
it also means that we probably won't be able to continue to rely on UK case law as precedent when it comes to determining cases in Ireland. And the third thing then is the free movement of workers. The rules around this will, will probably change. Um, I think to understand what impact Brexit could have for, for us in Ireland, we need to look at the potential effects it will have in Britain um, and also what the UK, our, our biggest trading partner, has done in the past. Because looking at the history of the UK's relationship with the EU, it was never an easy partnership. Um, the fact that EU law prevails over national law has always been a major bone of contention for the UK. And in many areas, the, the Court of Justice of the European Union, the CJEU, has widened the scope of rights beyond that which would have been set by UK domestic courts. But post-Brexit, the UK will no longer have to follow these CJEU decisions. So what areas of employment law which have been heavily influenced by EU law could see change and, and could have an impact on employers such as yourselves? Well, the first thing is the UK has always been opposed to the Working Time Directive. It never, never wanted it. When it implemented the working time regulations, it managed to include an opt-out of the maximum 48-hour maximum working week, unlike in Ireland. If the working time regulations were revoked, it would mean that there would be almost no legal protection um, against long working hours in the UK and no legal requirements for rest or, or paid holidays. That's obviously taking an extreme view. Another area that could be open to repeal is TUPI. Ireland and the UK have always differed hugely um, on, on TUPI. Again, it's something else that the UK just never liked. Remember, before the regulations came in, company A could simply transfer its business to company B, and that was the end of it. The employees just didn't come into it. If the UK was to repeal the TUPI regulations, what would that mean for the transfer of a business from the Republic of Ireland to the North, for example? Would TUPI apply on the transfer in, and then be disregarded once the transferor takes control. I think this is one of a number of reasons as to why the exit is likely to take more than two years, because it'll take a while to figure out how things like this will actually work in practice. If you take an extreme view then, the hard Brexit approach, which envisages that the UK will do anything to undercut us um, and to look more favorable um, for, to US business, for example, it, it, it technically would be open to them to introduce further deregulation along the lines of the US employment at will model. Um, and this isn't a necessarily a new concept. So before there was any talk of the, of the UK leaving the EU, back in 2011, a previous UK government published a report called the Beecroft Report. And that report dabbled with um, proposals of extreme deregulation on areas not governed by EU law, mainly on unfair dismissal. And the report said that, well, look, un unemployment rates were no different in the US than in the UK, so why not bring in this no-fault dismissal, uh, an employment-at-will model? I think the fundamental point is that the whole legal structure is open to change. Again, we don't have a crystal ball, as Melanie said, so we don't know. But instead of complaining to, um, or complaining about decisions of the CJEU, the, the UK government could simply decide that if it doesn't like something, it's going to change the law. And if you do have organisations in the UK or you employ people in the UK, it could have an impact on your business. 
I think that the single biggest Brexit-related issue from an employer's perspective and, and certainly from an Irish employer's perspective is the free movement of workers. Um, you may have seen that the day after the, the result was uh, announced, Google Trends reported a 100% spike in UK searches for getting an Irish passport. But I think the issue arises in, in two contexts for our purposes. First of all, the free movement of workers um, between Ireland and the UK, but also the free movement of workers around the, the broader European Union. And to put some of this in context, in 2014, the British government issued 17,000 new national insurance numbers to Irish nationals entering the workforce. And that was on top of the hundreds of thousands of Irish nationals already working in the UK. And the flow of traffic isn't just one way. In the same year, the Irish government issued 15,000 new PPS numbers to UK nationals entering the Irish workforce. So obviously you can see how interlinked we all are and obviously we are the, the, the only country with the issue of a land border with the UK to contend with and how that's going to work is anybody's guess really. But for the purposes of your business, what we do recommend you, you do now is look at the number of non-UK nationals working in the UK and look at the number of uh, UK nationals working for your organisations in Ireland and around the, the, the broader European Union, because a time might well come, again, subject to what arrangement is put in place post-Brexit, but a time could come where a non-UK national will require some kind of permission to work in the UK, and likewise, um, a UK national could require some kind of work permit to work around the European Union. And whatever form of work permit or, or permission to work that takes, it does bring with it an administration issue, um, a timing issue, and a cost issue. If any of you who ever applied for an employment permit in the, in the past, you know that it can take some time. Um, so it's worth bearing in mind. So yeah, we would urge you to, to look at your business strategic plans now and to factor into your considerations the fact that there, there could be a limit on, on the movement of workers in and out of the UK, subject obviously to what agreement is put in place and whether the UK wants to stay in, in the single market from a trade perspective. Um, one other thing that's worth mentioning from an employment and benefits perspective, even though I am not a pensions expert, is the idea of a cross-border pension. Um, a cross-border pension is a pension that is hosted or based in one member state and has beneficiaries in another or several other EU member states. And of all the cross-border pensions that exist, one-third of them are hosted out of Ireland, but another third are, are based in the UK. And because they are governed by European leg legislation, those will cease to exist post-Brexit. So although you might not necessarily need to unwind your, your cross-border pension in the UK if that's where it is hosted, you might need to think about moving the host location to another, another member state and the reason um, we're mentioning this now is that it could take 12 to 18 months to actually organise, set up and administer. Um, and even with moving your UK pension uh, to another member state, you also need to think about what will happen to those employees who stay in the UK. Will you need to set up a new pension scheme for them there? Having said all that, there are unlikely to be any short-term changes to EU law or, or free movement of worker rights 
until the, the UK leaves the, the EU. Um, practically speaking, there are a couple of things that you could be doing to try to prepare yourselves for the changes. Um, think about where you might find employees, if it's going to be more difficult for UK talent to work here. On the, the immigration side, obviously identify any UK nationals working for you in the EU and any um, EU nationals working for you in the UK. Track your EU workers' immigration status. And if you can, try to take steps to secure um, your workers' immigration status. And for example, a practical first step might be for any UK nationals working in Ireland, have a look at whether they might be eligible for Irish citizenship or Irish residency. Um, and other than that, just try to keep up to date with the changes. Obviously, that's what we're here for. And we have a dedicated Brexit team in the firm who will keep you up to date with the changes as they arise. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. I have to say I'm, I'm glad Avril dealt with the WRC because it brings me out in a blind rage and even the fact that she's standing in front of you saying it depends on the look of the draw, what adjudicator you get in our world-class system just, uh, I have to say, frustrates me beyond belief. So I wouldn't have been able to find the positives that she managed to find um, and they all know my views on that. Um, but in any event, thank you. Uh, have we any questions? Or we operate a calendar year, 1st January to 31st December. Um, what I'm at, is the statutory sick leave year relevant? Do you know what I mean? Like the 1st of April to the 31st of March? Yeah. It's kind of a good question because there's always been a view that is the... Is, there's always been a question about whether the stat, whether the working time legislation specifies an annual leave year from one April to thirty one March. We don't believe it makes actually any difference. That if your organisation runs on a calendar year basis, that that's fine. You just use that as your year. Yeah. If your company has a stated 12-month uh, moratorium on carrying forward sick leave, um, does the 15-month rule still apply? Well, it's carrying forward annual leave as opposed to carrying forward sick leave. Sorry, no, annual leave, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yes, it does apply. All right. Yeah. The legislation is going to trump any, um, any, any provision you have in your, in your workforce. If you have a situation where you have casual workers and you accrue their, they calculate their annual leave with 8%, how would you do that if they were out sick? <sighs> with a big piece of paper and a calculator. <laughs> <laughs> I, like the, the working time legislation is one of the shortest pieces of employment legislation and one of the most complicated to advise on and to deal with in, in practical terms because the provisions for calculating annual leave, for calculating pay for annual leave, now for accruing sick leave while on annual leave are just so spectacularly difficult to grapple with that every time we get asked, well, every time I get asked a question, I have to ask Orla. Um, and every time... <laughs> Orla, you answer that question. Uh, I think any time you look at, I suppose, 
the, the atypical worker that doesn't fit into the full-time worker. The legislation nearly always says, look at the average of what they've earned over the 13-week period prior to the date in question. So that's what I would do. Like I would look at, you know, before they went out on sick leave, what is their average annual leave that they accrued in the 13-week period? And then I would use that. This is our fourth top tips of 2016. This year we have covered disciplinary procedures, we covered managing sickness absence, and we covered TUPI. We tried to translate transfers for you. Um, last year we covered performance management, we, co we covered disciplinary as well, um, and we covered uh, flexible workers. So a little bit of the, the atypical workers I was talking about earlier on. The intention behind our top tips is to give you some really practical tips and guidelines it's not it's not to quote sections of the legislation at you and it's the intention is to give you something that's very in the now very up to the minute and very based on our experience very practical um so you will this afternoon get a survey monkey if you have something you would like us to cover please let us know and um we will we will try and work it in that's what we've been doing for the last several years because this is about about our fourth year of the top tips series um so if there's something you'd like us to cover let us know we'd be happy to do so i i don't want to wish you all a happy c word because we're still in november um we will see you on the far side in early uh, 2017 enjoy the break <laughs> um and uh and um happy christmas sorry <laughs> thank you thank you